This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On April 24th, 2013, a group of garment factories collapsed in Rana Plaza near Dhaka, Bangladesh. The accident killed more than 1,100 people and injured at least 2,500. It's considered the deadliest accident in the history of the modern garment industry. That was 10 years ago, but the garment industry is still far from safe for workers. Garment factories like the one in Rana Plaza aren't unique to Bangladesh, and safety for garment workers is not just an issue overseas. A survey published by the U.S. Labor Department last year found that 80% of Southern California garment contractors had violated one or more provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act. How much has changed in the decades since the Rana Plaza collapse, and what can we, consumers, do to make sure the clothes we buy aren't made at the expense of workers' safety? We'll get into all that and more after this quick break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guests. Joining me for this conversation is Min Ha Pham. She's an associate professor of media studies at Pratt Institute. She's also the author of Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Social Media's Influence on Fashion, Ethics, and Property. Professor Pham, it's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. Also with us is E. Benjamin Skinner. He's the founder and president of Transparitum. That's a nonprofit that investigates worksite abuse and works to eliminate human rights abuses in the global supply chain. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. And Aja Barber. She's the author of Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. Aja, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. So Ben, walk us through what happened 10 years ago at the Rana Plaza Garment Factories. Um, So what happened was uh, on April 23rd, uh, 10 years ago, the workers and uh, certain local media organizations found cracks in the building. Uh, They they went to the, uh, the, the managers with a great deal of concern and they said, we don't feel safe here. The, the managers of several of those factories said, uh, return to the factory tomorrow or you will lose six months' pay. Um, once 
again, as happened us. Uh, uh, so many times over the last 30 years, workers' voices were not listened to. And uh, 24 hours later, uh, nearly 1,200 of them were dead. Um, nearly uh, over 2,500 of them were, were injured, grievously, many of them. Uh, so uh, it, was a, it was a tragedy, but it was by far not the first tragedy. Just six months earlier, 117 were killed in another factory uh, in, in Tazreen, uh, uh, Bangladesh, in a, a, a Tazreen factory fire in Bangladesh. Um, and, uh, and sadly, it, it has not been the, the last tragedy either in the last 10 years. Professor Pham, what were the demographics of the garment workers in this building? So um, garment workers globally are women and girls of color. About 85% of garment workers globally are women and girls of color. We see the same thing in Bangladesh. Oftentimes, garment workers are um, from rural districts. So they come from rural communities. They come into the cities looking for work. So you have rural, young women and girls of color. And what does someone's life look like as a garment worker at a place like Rana Plaza? Um, it means anywhere between that you could start working as early as 13 years old. Um, it means oftentimes living in very cramped spaces, taking out enormous debt, either from your family, your friends, maybe a bank, maybe a local loan shark, um, in order to, to just make ends meet because while garment workers in most places are paid a minimum wage, minimum wages almost everywhere don't constitute a living wage. Um, so when they are paid, and that's you know not a guarantee, but when they are paid, it's, it's generally not enough to support themselves. Um, it means working anywhere between 12 to sometimes 20 hours, depending on when an order is due. Um, and often it means being isolated from your family because again, a lot of garment workers are coming from um, rural um, communities. Aja, put what happened at Rana Plaza into context for us. How big of an issue is workplace safety in the garment industry broadly? It's a huge issue. And, um, you know, I think it speaks to a lot of different um, occupations that we have where we've seen a place where within our own um, areas of work, you're having less full-time work and more contract work. And that's essentially what is happening in the fashion industry as a whole. Um, there's a lot of contracting and there's a lot of outsourcing. And because of the way that system works, it's very easy for brands to um, turn away and say, oh, well, I had no idea. You know, we've paid for this factory to produce it. I didn't know that my clothing was being made in those conditions. And so worldwide, we've seen a shift to so much contract work, but within the fashion industry, it's rampant and uh, it's harmful. And who are these these contractors, these middle people who provide some sort of shield for some of the fashion companies? Um, it depends because depending on the company, the supply chain can be 50 people long. Um, a lot of um, consumers don't really know exactly what goes into making their clothing and who made their clothing, which is um, obviously a catchphrase of Fashion Rev to draw attention to the fact that um, we don't really know a lot about who's making our clothing and it's all become incredibly murky. And within that murkiness, there's loopholes for people to be seriously harmed and killed. And uh, with these sorts of phrases and, and hashtags, 
the goal is to draw attention to the fact that like you need to understand more about who's making your clothing and what's going on behind the scenes, more or less. Well, a month after the Rana Plaza collapse, the Accord on Fire and Building Safety in Bangladesh was introduced. And the Accord is an independent and legally binding agreement between brands and trade unions to ensure a safe and healthy garment and textile industry. Ben, what has the Accord achieved? Um, I, I would say it's achieved quite a bit. And, and it's easy to to cast uh, aside uh, multi-stakeholder uh, efforts like that, but this was a case where they, the the trade unions, both international and local, worked with with brands to 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 watch, uh, to monitor, to to conduct critically independent investigation of of the uh, building and fire uh, safety conditions for uh, north of twenty five hundred. Uh, factories in Bangladesh. Um, still far too brand, far too few brands have signed up to it, but there is there, there's real progress there. And I think I think the, the the expansion of that accord into Pakistan is a is a is a good thing. At the same time, the 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 broader issue across the broader industry is is still very wanting. The worker voice is still not heard on a whole range of issues that are of vital concern uh, to the people that make our clothes. Professor Pham, you've said this agreement falls short. The the accord falls short. How do you think it falls short? Yeah, the the accord um, imagines safety for garment workers, this is a single issue problem, right? The structural soundness of a building. So the goal of the accord is zero deaths from fire, electrical, and structural hazards. Now, the fact that that's the goal rather than a baseline expectation already tells us something about the severe limits of the accord. Safety for garment workers, right? The vast majority of whom, again, are women and girls of color living in or from um, what we call the global south. has to do with the elimination of racialized, gendered harassment and violence. It has to do with pregnancy bias. It has to do with the elimination of wage theft. Safety would also require adding things like maternity leave, childcare support, reproductive health care, um, clear avenues for divorce, avenues for fi- uh, avenues to file worker grievances, um, regular bathroom and meal breaks, freedom of association, right? So in other words, safety, when you talk to garment workers, requires a whole set of civil and worker rights that go far beyond you know, worrying about whether the building is going to collapse on your head. Um, so in a nutshell, the problem with the accord is twofold. It views safety as a single issue problem, and it views safety from a business perspective rather than a worker perspective. Uh, Professor Pham, why do you think the catastrophe galvanized the kind of international attention it did? It was a spectacular event, right? We saw images, their um, media coverage. It was horrifying. Um, And in some ways, it woke a lot of us up to um, the ways in which the conditions in which our clothes are made. Um, I think that also focusing on the kind of spectacular elements of of the collapse of what many are calling, you know, an industrial homicide um, is is good in one way because it raises the public awareness, but it's it also suggests that what happened in Rana Plaza is exceptional, right? And and as everyone on this call knows, um, it, this is an, the kind of violence, the everyday violence, you know, from wage theft to harassment to um, the lack of bathroom breaks, right? Um, is something that garment workers, not only in Bangladesh or any of the top 
garment-producing countries deal with every day, but we see it also in the United States, in Europe. Um, and so, you know, focusing on the kind of everyday violence is actually really important to solving this problem. A fast fashion is often blamed for the poor working conditions and meager pay garment workers are forced to live with. But as a consumer, how do you actually know what clothes are fast and which ones aren't? That's up next. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. We're discussing how the garment industry has and hasn't changed 10 years after the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh. We got this email from Pat who says, fast fashion is an immoral industry. Therefore, I try to buy no new clothes and to keep the ones I've had for 30 to 40 years, many of which came from secondhand shops like Salvation Army and Goodwill. You know, Aja, fast fashion is often depicted as as the culprit of poor work conditions in the garment industry. But let's just put some definition around that. First, what is fast fashion? Yeah, so fast fashion is uh, clothing that's turned out incredibly quickly um, with very little thought behind how it impacts both the worker and the planet. Um, Fast fashion is how we are able to walk into a store one week see clothing and then the very next week walk in and it's completely new clothing. It is an unlimited amount of choice pushed on the consumer, which as a result has greatly sped up our buying since 1990 by more than 20 times. So it's a system where there's very little care given to both the environment and the worker. How do you know whether a piece of clothing is fast fashion or not? Yeah, this is the hard part. Um, The thing I tell people first and foremost is you have to sometimes be willing to ask. Um, Obviously, when you go to the website of a big multinational, there's going to be a corporate responsibility page. And a lot of the language on that page is deliberately murky. And in many cases, I tell people, if you don't know, ask. If it's a company that you really, really like, ask them. Because the company that is doing the right thing will be more than excited to tell you. They'll be more than excited to tell you that everyone is paid above living wage. This is where we manufacture our goods. If it seems too deliberately murky, that's normally kind of a red sign. Ben, what is the garment industry's current economic model? How does it keep prices low? I think Professor Pham is right. There's there's, there's different economic models within the industry, different businesses, view their responsibility to their workers and their customers quite quite differently. And 
uh, the the fast fashion model is one that is is really responsible, I think, for a lot of downward pressure. I mean, first and foremost, it's it's consumers that are buying the, those products, right? Uh, uh, one way or another, we've gotten very used uh, over the last 30 years to this kind of con- consolation prize to uh, inflationary cycles. 30 years ago, we could buy a tank of gas for a mid-sized car for about $13, and you could get a T-shirt for roughly the same. Um, today, that tank of gas is more than three times as much, and that T-shirt you, you would buy for twelve seventy four on average, uh, and, and so I, I think you know the 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 economic model has really been to kind of cater to that to that um, that demand, but what surveys of consumers, particularly younger consumers, uh, Gen Zs and millennials, show time and time again is there is a latent demand there that is not being met. And that demand is for transparency. That demand is for products where we can understand what the working conditions are, uh, where we can hear the workers' voices and we know that they're okay. Let's go to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Blake. I have changed the kinds of clothes that I get over the past year because of the exploitation going on in uh, particularly South uh, East Asian countries. I look for things that are made in the United States and it is more expensive, but I do have some peace of mind knowing that I am making a little bit of a difference. Blake, thanks for that message. When we talk about where clothes get made, it's often places like China or Bangladesh, but Professor Pham, there are garment factories in the U.S. How do American garment factories compare to those abroad when it comes to workplace safety? Surprisingly, um, garment factories in the United States can be worse. Um, for example, just two years ago, garment workers in Los Angeles, California, didn't even make minimum wage, right? Garment workers in Bangladesh, in Vietnam, in many other places do make a minimum wage. But as, as we've already talked about, minimum wages are not close to a living wage, right? So the minimum wage, the fight for the minimum wage, even in California, was a fight for the the barest minimum. Um, The idea that sweatshops only exist in in other parts of the world, in Southeast Asia and South Asia, um, in the Caribbean, um, is, is, it doesn't match the reality, right? And it also, um, it also brings us into kind of stereotypes about governments and and um, societies outside of the United States that we think of as less humane, less concerned with civil rights, less concerned with workers' rights. That's that's not true. The garment, um, the global garment industry, um, is is problematic everywhere, right? And I think we should really be clear. Um, this is something that that Ben talks about in his article in the New York Times this week, right? That that fast fashion is a symptom, right? Not a cause of sweatshops, for example. Not a cause of the the worst labor conditions. Um, sweatshops exist not because fast fashion exists, and not because consumers are buying fast fashion. Sweatshops exist because contracts give brands unilateral power over almost everything: production schedule, prices, payment schedules, and even the right to amend. Um, including to cancel the contract at any time, including after shipment. We saw this in the early months of COVID. Sweatshops exist because export processing zones 
um, where a lot of these factories exist, aren't guided by, much less constrained by, labor and environmental safety laws or regulations. And because global supply chains are structurally designed to maximize um, profits for international brands by shifting, precisely by shifting the costs and risk of apparel manufacturing to poor countries and workers, right? Um, so these are the kind of structural conditions that lead to sweatshops. Glo- uh, designer brands, luxury brands are also not necessarily made in fair or safe working conditions. And that that really can't be said enough. Well, I want to get to that point in a moment. But you mentioned garment workers in the U.S. sometimes not being paid minimum wage. How how does that work? Is it that workers are particularly vulnerable or is it that they're being paid by piece and that ends up falling below the minimum wage standard in the U.S.? Explain that. Right. Yeah, they're paid by piece rate. Now, that's, that was outlawed in the United States after, you know, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which is one of the first kind of big, spectacular garment um, industry, quote-unquote, accidents, right? And that, that happened in the early part of the 20th century. Um, but so much of the global garment industry is unregulated. So much of it is underground. Um, so even as late as, you know, a couple of years ago, and I think it's still happening because, again, these factories are unregulated and oftentimes unregistered. Um, Garment workers are paid by piece when they are paid at all. Ben, your organization investigates workplace abuse broadly. Why are working conditions in the garment industry especially poor? So, uh, again, I think a lot of it comes from that that business model. Um, and what you see is country by country, uh, the, the apparel industry, which uh, right up until the 1990s was really an engine of economic growth, uh, the first step on the ladder uh, above subsistence farm work for, 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 for billions of people across the globe. In the 1990s, the model really shifted. Uh, and it became a, a, an industry that chased low-wage labor as a means to keeping prices counter-cyclical to, to, to inflation. Um, and, and, and what that means, what that results in, is in, in countries like Malaysia, where we've done a number of investigations now, um, as the Malaysian economy has grown overall, they have to import poor labor, uh, 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 indigent workers from Bangladesh, from Nepal, and from other uh, lower-income uh, countries and 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 those are the those that's really the engine driving that industry there now the challenge that we found over and over again is those workers very often are paying exorbitant fees to get the jobs and when they are uh, in the factories, their, their passports are taken away. They're held in, oftentimes in deplorable conditions. If you'll permit me, I just I want to I want to read the voice of one of these workers because, you know, for for all of us I, th- I think who do this work, it it it's it, it, it's personal, right? When you when you talk to these folks, and this 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 young man said to us, you know, we cannot just leave. We have to think about the huge amount of money we paid to come here. We are kept here as hostages. And, you know, you, you, you think about the price that you pay for these T-shirts, and, and, and you just have to ask, is this being made by a hostage? Now, Aja, fast fashion is often associated with low prices, but as Professor Pham alluded to, there are some items of clothing that 
have very high sticker prices? What do we get wrong with our assumptions about what price does or doesn't say about the ethics of how a piece of clothing is made? I think we get wrong with just assuming that we know a corporation um, because we follow them on social media. And instead of following the news and instead of following the paper trail, we kind of, you know, see what's being presented to us through marketing and we run with it. That's what I think we get wrong. There's going to be companies that, you know, charge a high price for things and they're doing things completely ethically. And I think a lot of the confusion comes from the fact that we also don't actually know how clothing should be priced. But the reason why it's so murky is because fast fashion has completely obscured our view of what clothing should cost. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things I tell people is, yes, it's very hard to tell the difference with, you know, maybe a luxury um, company that might be producing and not a great factory and an ethical company that that is. And I get that that's very complicated, but the reverse doesn't actually exist because when I see a t-shirt that costs $3 and I've seen that before, there's always going to be something that goes off in my head that says someone wasn't paid to get that price. Uh, Professor Pham, I'd love to hear from you on that question as well. What do you think we get wrong about or, or what assumptions do we incorrectly make when we see a, a high ticket item, high ticket priced item and, and what we might assume about how that item of clothing was made? Right. So it, it you know, um, intuitively makes sense that a high-priced garment was probably produced in uh, higher conditions, right? Um, and, and that's just something that's really dangerous to assume. Um, oftentimes, because there's been so much media, media scrutiny, social media scrutiny um, on budget brands, it's actually the, the higher-priced brands that get to fly under the radar, right? Because we're not really paying attention to them because they already get the benefit of the doubt. Um, so we, we need to stop doing that. And one way to do that is to remember that the problems in the global garment industry are structural problems. They're not the problems of individual brands, and they frankly can't be fixed through individual actions, individual consumer actions, right? These are structural problems. And so again, if, if we're really serious about, about fixing some of these problems, then we have to think about where, you know, we have to locate these problems much more um, precisely, right? The contracts, how export processing zones um, are, are operating, um, the kind of inherently exploitative contracts, the fact that global supply chains aren't transparent, not because um, they're broken, but because they're exactly designed to not be transparent. They're designed to be able to allow brands um, to, to shift the blame right down to, through this um, long convoluted subcontracting system. Um, so we have to look at those problems and we have to get you know, comfortable with dealing with the kind of um, um, the, this, the larger systemic things that can be overwhelming for sure. We'll get more into the role consumers play after the break. We're discussing how the garment industry has or hasn't changed 10 years after the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh. One brand has made it their mission to manufacture clothes inside the U.S., but how much does this address the problem of worker safety and fair pay? We'll find out next when we speak to the brand's founder. Stay with us. Hey. I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, 
we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to our discussion about workplace safety in the garment industry. Let's add another voice to the conversation. Bayard Winthrop is the founder and CEO of American Giant. That's an online apparel company with a mission to manufacture clothes in the U.S. Bayard, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Jen. Why is it important for you to manufacture your clothes here in the U.S.? Well, there are a couple of parts to it. I think um, for us, we um, we really value the the proximity of uh, of uh, a local supply chain it allows us to be much more closely engaged with the product we're producing and the men and women that make it. And then, you know, the other piece of it is what we've been talking about this morning is, you know, the United States has some of the strictest worker safety labor laws in the world, uh, environmental protections. And so when you manufacture in the United States, you get to operate within that framework. It's a bit more expensive, but it um, it puts to rest a lot of the concerns consumers have about how do I reliably buy from a brand that I know is operating in a way consistent with the values they're presenting on, on Instagram. And so I think we really value both the quality that flows out of that, but also the um, the opportunity to support uh, American law that we've spent so much time you know, putting into place and, and operating within that. How much more does it cost you? To, to do this yourself rather than outsourcing the process? Yeah, cost is a strange thing. It's, it, it costs more for sure. The primary factor um, are, are rates of labor and, um, and compliance with environmental and worker safety and child labor laws. Those, those are the two main differences. But, but counteracting that, you, you do have um, increasingly competitive uh, reshoring and domestic manufacturing benefits like uh, the cost of power is, is becoming much more competitive by staying close. Um, and you have a much better ability to manage inventory levels. One of the things that came out of the pandemic is a huge overhang of inventory that essentially is getting either discounted or stuffed into a landfill. And by by managing a local supply chain, you're able to much more effectively manage that piece too. So it's more expensive. It varies a lot by category, um, but but typically not as dramatically different as most uh, I think as most people expect. We've been talking a lot about consumers not really understanding how much their clothes perhaps should cost. And you set out to what you've called affordable, high-quality clothing. A plain women's T-shirt from American Giant costs around $50. But this is in a market where someone can buy a T-shirt for less than 10 How do you compete? Well, I think a few things. One is it depends on the consumer's um, prioritization of um, supporting brands that they think are consistent with their own values. And, you know, I think it's important for our listenership to remember that 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 that's a luxury, right? I mean, there's a lot of consumers that um, are buying at, at some of the low-end providers like Walmart that, that need that value system that don't have the ability to afford higher-end stuff. But for those consumers that can, 
Um, I think that's one piece of it is is having not just the, the product that you're buying, but also the values that it represents as part of what you are paying for. And the other piece is quality. And I think one of the one of the sort of dirty secrets of the fast fashion industry is it's just hor- it's horrific for the environment. And um, that's not just the transportation costs and the manufacturing in places with low environmental and, and human rights uh, standards, but it is also the disposability of that clothing. And I think people really understand that intuitively that. Um, I'm now in my 50s, and I, you know, we didn't buy clothes like that when I was growing up. We bought clothes that lasted for a long time, and they stayed out of the trash. They, they were used for many, many years. And so buying and making clothing that is quality and long-lasting is part of, the, is part of that as well. So um, you know, we, we are on the higher end of the quality spectrum, and, and so um, we, our, our pricing reflects that. Uh, but I think it's a it's a decision that consumers have to kind of navigate, and unfortunately, actually. And I think there's a, a real... Uh, complacency on the on the on the side of government, on policymakers, and on brands that are not making it easier for consumers to make good decisions. Manufacturing clothes in the U.S. does it necessarily mean workers are being treated fairly? As we said earlier, a survey published by the U.S. Labor Department last year found that 80 percent of Southern California garment contractors had violated one or more provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act. What steps do you take to ensure you know the conditions under which the clothes you sell are being made? Yeah, it's a good question. I, mean, I think maybe at the highest level, uh, an example like that is is certainly good to be paying attention to. But it's also worth noting that it's breaking th- those businesses are breaking the law, and so um, that's a criminal act and and is one that is enforceable by the federal government. And so I think that um, at least there is in place a law that is in- endeavoring to protect against that. In our case, um, we work with with supply chain partners that we've worked with for many many years. We've been around for over ten years, and um, you know we've done a ton of um, uh, research and partnership with those facilities, and the media is in there all the time with us. And so, I think one thing: if you if you look up American Giant, search any of the news about us, what you'll find is that we bring uh, reporters and cameras into our facilities uh, regularly uh, throughout the year. And so, that, that that's an easy way to do it. I think. You know, we have we're different than a lot of the of the brands that some of your guests were talking about earlier. That uh, it's quite simple. If you want to come into either as a consumer or as a reporter into our facilities, you're welcome at any time. Um, and and I think that's a reflection of a confidence that that we're operating facilities that are that are consistent with American law. And um, that's an easy thing to do when you when you work with decent partners, which the vast majority of the textile supply chain is. Our businesses that have been around for a long time that prioritize all the things that we've been talking about, including environmental stewardship, and and frankly, that's why that segment has really has really survived. Is that they've they've navigated the last forty years of, in my mind, of of poor trade policy by being um, good and efficient. Um, um, partners in, in the textile industry. What changes do you think need to be made within the industry to address some of these issues? Yeah, the, I think that you know, the, the thing that for, for I think for the listenership to really kind of contemplate is to what extent do we think the values that we have in place in the United States are uh, are basic human and environmental values that that we should respect, and if we think they should, we should. Um, then holding our domestic manufacturers to those very high standards is a good thing. Minimum wage laws, child safety laws, uh, worker safety, OSHA standards, environmental standards, those are things that we value as Americans. We voted them into law. Why are we allowing our biggest brands to skirt those laws and make uh, the products that they sell in places that violate those laws and essentially be playing outside the U.S. system? I think that's a profound um, question because effectively our, our, our D.C. representatives 
representatives are establishing a very uneven playing field for domestic manufacturers. They are having to compete with much higher cost structures based on compliance with the laws that we care about against brands that don't. And I think we have to reconcile that. So I think it begins with with better trade deals that creates a, a level playing field for U.S. manufacturers to compete against our, let's say, our Chinese or our Indian or, or Central American partners, number one. And I think if you find, if you talk to those manufacturers, what they'll tell you is they would relish the opportunity to compete toe-to-toe in an even playing field. So that's one. I think the second is we've got to see leadership from retailers. Uh, so brands like Amazon and Walmart. Walmart has actually been a leader in this regard. They have committed $350 billion to a Made in America initiative over the next 10 years. But the rest of those categories have been silent. Uh, nothing from Amazon, uh, nothing from Target, nothing from JCPenney. So leadership from the retailers. They, they provide a very important uh, business uh, draw for manufacturers to become compliant. Brands need to start stepping up. Some of the great American brands that spend a lot of time spending on Instagram but behaving in ways that are totally different need to have that earlier comment about uh, what's happening in the boardroom become part of their decision-making process. And And then I would say lastly, consumers. But I think lastly, consumers. I think it's an awful lot to ask of people that are trying to buy a T-shirt to navigate the highly complex and opaque uh, supply chain questions that we're discussing today. So I guess that's how I present it. I think I think it has to begin with DC getting its act together and and, and stop mouthing about what matters to them, but actually putting in place real trade deals that can affect real change um, and support American workers, but also um, have a more uh, just sane and um, and basic trade policy that that uh, reconciles our values with how we're conducting ourselves. That's Bayard Winthrop. He's the founder and CEO of American Giant. That's an online apparel company with a mission to manufacture clothes in the U.S. Bayard, thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me, Jen. Uh, we heard Bayard, you know, sort of set up his hierarchy of what he'd like to see change, starting with policy moving to the industry or a cultural shift and then down to consumers. Ben, in the past, you've been reluctant to talk about the role consumers play and how the garment industry operates. But now you say we, we need to talk about consumers. What's changed? So I, I, I think critically, consumers need to feel empowered here. Um, there's, there's a role that consumers can play by demanding greater transparency. There are a couple of initiatives that I talk about in the piece this week. Uh, One of them is the commitment to responsible recruitment, which is a joint effort of the American Apparel Footwear Association and the uh, Fair Labor Association. And that's just some basic common sense principles around uh, uh, codes of conduct that go into the the, the suppliers, the manufacturers' uh, contracts. And uh, the first is no worker should pay for their job. The second no worker should have their identity document confiscated. And the third is no worker should be uh, uh, deceived before they leave home. These are kind of very baseline principles, but to date, just 85 brands have signed up uh, to those principles. And so I think consumers should go to the AAFA website, look at the, the brands on that list, and, and, and then consider if brands aren't on that list, do you really want to buy from them? Um, I, you know, I think there is a. Uh, I think there are steps that that consumers can take. They can go to the Know the Chain website and look at the the rankings for transparency for for 
uh, apparel uh, companies. Uh, and, and, and fundamentally, they, they, they should not feel disempowered. And the, the other aspect that consumers uh, uh, can, uh, the, the other way that I think all of us can get involved is by interrogating our investment portfolios and, and looking to make sure that the investments that we have, not only in apparel companies, but in all consumer goods companies, are in companies that are progressively becoming more and more transparent and disclosing their social audits as a, as, as a minimum baseline first step. Professor Pham, what are the main changes you want to see made in the garment industry? I've named a lot of them um, having to do with, you know, policy, um, the international trade um, laws that we have, the international labor laws, the um, um, export processing zones, the ways those are constructed, contracts between buyers and suppliers are terribly um, asymmetrical. Um, so I think those really kind of larger systemic um, conditions that create the problems that we're say- seeing need to be addressed. The other, the, the last thing I really want to address is this racial bias against clothes made in Asia. And I hear this a lot. I, I address this actually in my book, um, Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Um, we should know, consumers should know, that a made-in-the-USA label doesn't necessarily mean it was made under fair conditions, good conditions, but it also might not have been made within the continental U.S. So a made-in-the-U.S. label might have also been made in a factory in one of the U.S. territories in the Pacific Islands, for example, somewhere like Saipan. A made-in-Italy label very well may have been made in a Chinese factory um, in, in one of the you know, thousands of Chinese factories in Prado, Italy, right? Um, and so those, those origin labels, we really need to think more critically about. That's Minha Pham. She's an associate professor of media studies at Pratt Institute. Also with us today, Ben Skinner. He's the founder and president of Transparentum. That's a nonprofit that investigates worksite abuse and works to eliminate human rights abuses in the global supply chain. His recent piece in the New York Times is called The True Cost of a $12 T-Shirt. And Aja Barber. She's the author of Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. Professor Pham... Ben, Aja, thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. 
That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.